Good afternoon. My name is Alex Padilla. Welcome to the second uh, Exploring Economic Freedom Lecture Series talk. Our speaker for today is Scott Bollier. Scott is a BB&T Distinguished Professor of Capitalism and the Department Chair of Economics at Mercer University. He earned his undergrad degree in economics and history from Northern Michigan University in 2000, his master and PhD in economics from George Mason University. Uh, his field of research is mostly economic development and is a, one of the leading experts on Botswana economic growth. He has a book forthcoming called The Making of African Exception, How Botswana Escape the African Tragedy and How Other African Countries Could Do the Same. He's also the director of the Center for Undergraduate Research in Public Policy and Capitalism. This new center supports research, collaborative research between undergraduates and faculty members that addresses themes related to capitalism. He also teaches a class called The Economic and Moral Foundation of Capitalism. He has widely lectured on these different types of topics and Dr. Bollier is going to talk to us about Botswana and Zimbabwe. Please welcome Dr. Bollier. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. And uh, thank you to uh, Dr. Padilla for his wonderful hospitality. This is my first time to, uh, uh, to Denver or to the state of Colorado, and it's been just great. Um, there's a lesson in all of this for those of us who are here. Uh, 80 degrees and sunshine trumps pizza and extra credit. Uh, I'm glad you all turned out, uh, and I think, uh, I, I think you'll uh, enjoy uh, this presentation and probably learn quite a bit. Uh, many of you probably don't even know uh, where Botswana is located. Um, I'll give you a quick geography lesson here. Uh, most of you are probably thinking, why? are we talking about Botswana, okay? And uh, I sometimes wake up saying the same thing. What on earth am I doing working on Botswana research? Uh, I'm just, I, I, I uh, did my undergraduate work at a small little school, uh, a lot like uh, Metro, actually. Northern Michigan University uh, is, a, is a really great uh, school. It's a commuter school uh, right up on the shores of Lake Superior. Uh, really neat place to study. Uh, but never, when I was uh, your age, uh, did I think I was going to end up being this weird Botswana guy, okay? Like, uh, I, I really don't fit the part, okay? And this is actually one of my biggest uh, struggles and challenges is people ask me, you know, they're expecting a certain type of person to come in and talk about Botswana, and there's this guy coming in from the Midwest, okay, with a Canadian-sounding uh, dialect uh, uh, talking about the Botswana miracle. Um, so it's, it's kind of surreal uh, that this has become my, my research agenda, but it's something I've grown very passionate about. And I'll tell you the story uh, as we go a little bit here. Uh, my plan is to talk for about 45 minutes, uh, uh, get, hopefully take some questions uh, at the end of that. If you all have questions along the way, please uh, just feel free to do so. Um, ask them instead of waiting because if you're like me, you'll forget uh, what you were going to ask. Uh, so let, this is nice. This is all of my uh, 
biographical background here. All of those titles uh, that Alex uh, rat rattled off uh, about me are just an indication of uh, the fact that there's no one else to do things uh, at Mercer, and we're understaffed, so then you just give Scott another title, and uh, it makes him look very distinguished. Um, and uh, uh, that's how I am, uh, the person uh, that I am. Let's get into this, and let's move ahead here. Uh, you, may, you may actually expect, you know, like a bunch of bullet points, and we'll have some bullet points in a few slides, uh, but here's where we're going to start. Uh, when you think about uh, Africa, you think about, uh, let's see, that uh, picture's okay. Uh, you think about um, big cats. Uh, you think about elephants and hippos. Uh, maybe you think about... HIV and AIDS, uh, this is something that's a serious problem. Uh, you think about anarchy, and not in a good way, not in a way that Professor Padilla talks about anarchy, okay? You're thinking uh, war of all against all, and uh, uh, you generally, uh, unless you're really well-read in this area, you kind of lump Sub-Saharan Africa together and say, boy, this is a place that's still pretty screwed up. And this is actually what most economists do uh, when they talk about Africa, okay? They have something that we're going to get to that's uh, called a dummy variable. And they throw it on anything that they do in, uh, uh, in African research, and they say, there's all of Africa explained in one variable. Um, what I'm trying to do is something a little different. I'm trying to raise my hand and say, you have to treat each African country as a different country. And when you do so, you see a bunch of different things happening. Some countries, like Botswana, are miraculous. Other countries, uh, right next to Botswana, are just insanely uh, depressing. Uh, so uh, this is you know, what I think about. Uh, this is actually from uh, uh, some field work that I did in Botswana. I led uh, a couple of other researchers there, and uh, I could tell you a bunch of uh, crazy stories about what it's like uh, being in the field. Uh, being in the field, in part, you get to see wild game, but you also deal with culture shock and malaria pills and a lot of other uh, crazy things. Uh, this was actually at a game reserve. Uh, it's an interesting story. Um, uh, Botswana allows uh, people to own a lot of the big game, okay? So uh, if you all wanted to get into the business of raising elephants, you could, okay? And the elephant population in Botswana has actually um, grown. It's gone up over time because there's nothing like a baby elephant, okay, uh, to draw people in and encourage tourism. Like, oh, look at the baby elephant, all right? And uh, a whole bunch of uh, tourism entrepreneurs, basically, creating these reserves, uh, welcome people to them. One of the reserves uh, actually has kind of tame cheetahs, and this is a cheetah. Uh, uh, it's only kind of tame. It's tame when it's eating, okay? So you can actually, I, there are other pictures that I have of uh, uh, me and my wife uh, petting this guy. And uh, you go up close to it, and it's, you know, just purring, uh, but it sounds like uh, Alex's car. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very loud purr, uh, and you only want to pet him when he's eating because he's not thinking about eating you. Uh, it's uh, 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 kind of a neat experience. This guy uh, was uh, abandoned by uh, his mother, and so they've just got him on a reserve. One thing that they do for... Uh, uh, for the cheetahs for exercise, they're, they're the fastest sprinting uh, animal in the world, uh, is they actually dangle this piece of meat right here uh, from an SUV. And they just crank up the speed of the SUV, and they hang it out, and the cheetah just goes running after it. So this cheetah is living a pretty good life. Occasionally, he has to chase an SUV, but otherwise he gets petted and uh, uh, gets to play with meat. Uh, here's... Whoop, 
that's our geography lesson. Next, uh, here's uh, just a couple of rhinos. Uh, Botswana has, uh, uh, I think, 21 uh, rhinos remaining. And uh, again, this is something that you think about uh, when you think of Africa. So these are the obligatory uh, African pictures, and we'll have some more of those uh, in just a minute. Now, here's our geography lesson. Uh, this is uh, where Botswana is located. Uh, it's in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, right down there just north of, uh, of South Africa, uh, just east of Namibia, uh, to its west, uh, to its east, okay, uh, to its east right here is uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, we're going to talk about that too. I'm starting with Botswana and then we're going to finish up with, uh, with Zimbabwe. Uh, this map on the, uh, let's see, it's your left, uh, has kind of basically a, a, a physical geography of Botswana. One thing to note about the physical geography there uh, is that it's almost all desert land. Okay, 80% of the country is desert. Uh, it's, uh, it's got the Kalahari running through much of it. Most people live along the eastern edge of it. Haverone down there in the southeastern corner with the star by it, that's the capital, uh, by far the, the largest and most densely populated area uh, in the country. Uh, if you look up to the northwest, uh, way up there in the upper left-hand corner, you'll see the Akavango Delta. Uh, it's one of the uh, remaining wonders of the world. Uh, it's very expensive to visit, but if you all like have bucket lists, okay, this is something you really want on your bucket list. I regret uh, being so close to it, but not going there. I was still kind of poor, and I'm still kicking myself for not going into this delta. It's, it's a flooded uh, swamp area that has hippos and lions in their natural habitat and whatnot. Uh, it's one of Botswana's big industries today still, is tourism into the Akavango. A um, <clears throat> couple of other things about this. So it's 80% um, uh, desert. Uh, it does have one of the largest uh, diamond reserves anywhere in the world. So uh, there are some diamond issues that we can talk about. Uh, they're resource rich. They're one of the, uh, they have more natural resources than most countries. So a lot of people question how sustainable their growth is. Okay, uh, we'll get into that uh, a little bit uh, later in the presentation. And again, they're, they're all concentrated along uh, the southeast. One, uh, one thing that is common uh, in this part of the uh, world are regular droughts. Uh, Botswana suffers through extremely dry seasons, and uh, uh, you know, they, they worry legitimately about whether or not they're going, their crops are going to be sustained, whether or not they'll have enough water. Uh, and one of the big, um, you know, kind of, their, one of their, 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 their claims to fame is that uh, since independence, nobody has starved or died from drought, okay? So they have uh, a, a somewhat expansive welfare state that takes care of even the very poor uh, uh, in their country. Uh, let's move ahead here. And uh, you all may think about Africa as lions and tigers, and well, not tigers, uh, lions and elephants and rhinos. Uh, I do sometimes. I think of Africa as uh, kind of a... A, a wild and crazy place, uh, but this is what I come back to again and again as an economist, uh, and this is what um, I wake up thinking about a lot of mornings, not every morning, okay, but a lot of mornings, um, it's this one graph uh, that causes me to uh, get up and write a little bit uh, and wonder what in the world uh, is going on uh, in Botswana that's so exceptional. If you look at the blue line, uh, this is Botswana's per capita income. Okay, income per head. 
Uh, and then the red line is SSA. What's SSA? Sub-Saharan Africa. That's with Botswana included in it. Okay, so the, the line would be just a little lower if we didn't have uh, uh, Botswana included. So what we have here, since 1965, why is that an important date? Well, it's uh, when Botswana became independent, okay? So since 1965, we have Sub-Saharan Africa basically flatlining it, okay? Uh, it's hard to draw a line much flatter than that. If you asked me to draw a horizontal line, I probably couldn't do as well as this, okay? But that's what the region as a whole has done since 1965. It's a region that's basically been stagnant. There have been ups, there have been downs, there have been nice success stories for some countries, but overall, Sub-Saharan Africa really hasn't grown since independence, okay? Uh, some people blame that on colonialism, some people blame it on uh, natural resources, some say it's just geography, uh, but for whatever reason, we flatlined it uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. At the same time, though, <clears throat> you've got Botswana, which was actually the third poorest country in the world in 1965, all right? The British Empire didn't want to hang on to Botswana. They wanted no part of it, and they said, it's just a drain on us, okay? It's a poor country whose fortunes are forever going to be tied to South Africa. That's what the British Empire said about the Botswana, the Bekwanaland Protectorate. They, were, they offered protection to Botswana so that if anyone invaded it, uh, they would come to the aid, their aid. But otherwise, they didn't want to invest in it. They weren't interested in the diamonds because they didn't know they were there, all right? Uh, uh, so they just said, let this country go, and it's going to get absorbed by South Africa. Uh, in 1965, if you trust the income data, okay, if you trust the data, it was poorer than average sub-Saharan African countries. It was third poorest in the world. And if you look at the charts since then, you can't find another country that's grown that fast. It's the fastest growing country in the world since 1965. Faster than China, okay? Faster than India. And they're growing like crazy right now. But Botswana sustained this for more than 40 years now, okay? And it's almost all upwards since 1965. Uh, being there, I can tell you, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Botswana and get my hands dirty, most economists don't want to go to Africa, and they certainly don't want to take malaria pills, okay, uh, and typhoid pills, and other just stuff that you uh, inject into your shoulders, okay? My wife is really queasy about needles, so we got out of our, our, our uh, uh, appointment where we had five shots, and she just was crying. She's like, what the hell did you do, okay? Like, why are you making me do this? And I was like, I'm not making you, okay? But uh, uh, we, we, we prepped for it, and... Uh, and got ready for the trip, and I was scared. You know, everyone told us, don't drink the water, uh, avoid eggs, okay, avoid most meat, all right, wash everything, and, you know, be in, be in your uh, hotel before dark. We got there, and it's the most boring place in the world, okay? It's like the Midwest Midwestern town that I grew up in. Okay, there are a couple of restaurants. There's the strip that you just walk up and down, and there's nothing at all going on. Okay, uh, but nothing is actually really good. Okay, nothing is peace and stability and order. Okay, I like nothing. Nothing is uh, better than something when it comes to Africa because something is all of the stuff that we imagine Africa being. Okay, something is, you know, one tribe fighting with another. Something is Robert Mugabe. 
uh, kicking a lot of his people out of the country, okay, and his thugs, basically pushing people into uh, refugee camps. That's something. Botswana, you just, you eat your meal. And actually, you can drink the water, all right? Uh, and the mosquitoes aren't as bad as everyone over here in the West tells us uh, they are, okay? So uh, it's a country that's got a lot of paradoxes and uh, uh, interesting stories associated with it. But my main interest in this is about this graph, okay? What, what in the world went on there? What's caused Botswana to grow so rapidly, okay? And this is uh, how I've kind of become the Botswana guy. I got interested in this and I chased after it uh, real passionately. I thought it was going to be, I was telling someone right before the talk, I thought it was going to be one project and then I'd move on to other things. And it's like this curse, okay? I did one project and people wanted me to do another one and another one and I just keep embracing it and saying, all right, I'm the Botswana guy, okay? And here I am uh, talking to you all uh, about this wonderful and uh, very interesting country. Here's another way to understand Botswana relative to other countries. Uh, this is the ratio of GDP, per, GDP in 2007 to GDP in 1965, all right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good punster, but this is a, 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 no pun intended, it's a diamond in the rough. Look at the chart on the left. Uh, Botswana's had basically a 16-fold increase in real per capita income, right? No other country is even close, okay? And most of them are down around one, some are less than one. Uh, Zimbabwe isn't looking like the worst, but Zimbabwe, uh, we don't have data for since 2005. It's now 2010, okay? Zimbabwe would be all the way to the right if we had that data, okay? Uh, they've done such a fine job of messing up their economy that we can't get reliable data. Most people say that since 2005, uh, Zimbabwe's uh, real per capita income has shrunk by 30% per year, okay? So think about what that would mean in, in, in the United States. Uh, per capita income here is maybe somewhere around $40,000. Take 30% off of that between 2005 and 2006, and then another 30%, and another 30%. Do that five times, and the number gets pretty small. Zimbabwe did that, okay? And their number was really small to begin with. It's very sad what's happening there. Uh, so you have a lot of variety. You have a lot of variation in, uh, uh, in Africa. You have some very poor countries, some countries that have done a little bit better. And then you've got this one that's just bucking the trend. It's, uh, it's, it's growing like crazy. And uh, that's something that needs some explaining. So I've told you some of this already. Uh, uh, these, here are my bullet points now. Um, why am I studying Botswana? It's the fastest growing country in the world for nearly 40 years. We should have a good story about why it's growing so fast. Okay, this is something economists are interested in. Some of you may have uh, a macro class uh, or like a development class. This is at the heart of what economists do. Adam Smith was puzzled by this. What's the title of his great book? The Wealth of Nations, okay? Uh, this is an extension of Smith's work. Let's understand the wealth of a really fast-growing nation, Botswana. Uh, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Uh, so it's the fastest-growing nation in the world for 40 years. It's above the Matt Lauer standard. Uh, now, who's Matt Lauer? Anyone know? Anyone awake early this morning? Today's show, okay. Um, I have a relative who thinks he's very hot, okay. Uh, I think she's very 
insane, okay? But uh, uh, she loves Matt Lauer, and she called me a couple of years ago, and she said, my gosh, you aren't going to a really scary place. Matt Lauer is there. And I said, that's right. Matt Lauer is in Botswana, okay? Matt Lauer doesn't go just anywhere, all right? I don't think we'll see him in Congo anytime soon. And he certainly is not going to go to Zimbabwe, all right? I, anyone who wants to go into, Botswana, uh, into Zimbabwe is just nuts, okay? You'd have to be crazy to do it. But Matt Lauer, um, despite having a cush gig in New York, he doesn't have to leave New York ever, went to Botswana. And he rode around on some elephants and did some other things to promote uh, Botswana's economy. It's the only African country that he's really gone and spent an extended period of time in. Okay? Uh, he isn't going to Kenya. He isn't going to Zimbabwe. So Botswana is this country that's above whatever this subjective threshold is that Matt Lauer has in his head. Okay? Like, okay, I'll go there. It's safe enough uh, for me to take my crew to. That's important, all right? Uh, because if Matt Lauer's going there, I can feel safe going there as a tourist, okay? Um, so it's, it's exceptional in that way. Uh, what I'm doing in, uh, in the broader um, economic discussion, I'm trying to fit this into a body of academic work, and the guy that I'm really wanting to just tangle up with, okay, and have listened to what I'm saying, he, he, he hasn't listened so far, okay, but I'm still trying. You just, you keep swinging, keep throwing haymakers, and hope at some point one of them connects. I, uh, that's what I'm trying to do uh, in, uh, in my work. And the person here who I'm uh, trying to uh, work on and uh, get to pay attention to the Botswana miracle is Jeffrey Sachs, okay? Uh, Jeffrey Sachs uh, has done a, a, a ton of work. Uh, a lot of it more recently, since about 1995, is less scholarly in the traditional sense. He's not writing a ton of refereed academic articles. He's doing more popular stuff, okay? Uh, his book, uh, I'm going to forget the title here, it's The End of Poverty. I think that's what it's titled, something like that. Uh, it, who, who knows who wrote the intro to that book? Anyone remember who wrote it? Yeah. It's Bono, okay? So Jeffrey Sachs is a rock star. If he was here at Metro, this room would be standing room only, okay? Actually, you all would need a bigger room, okay? He'd, he'd pack the place. He'd have a 1,000 people here. He's walking arm in arm into Africa with Bono, okay? And talking about how we need bed nets for Africans, okay? How malaria is really something that can be curable for 10 cents a day, okay? Uh, and saying other things that... Um, Tear at your heart, okay? You, it, if you pay attention to his work, uh, you become convinced that it's just a matter of, you know, about 100 steps, and we can solve all of Africa's problems. And the issue is really just a lack of support and aid for Africa. Uh, he says that the reason Africa's so poor is that it's really about geography. And what's the geography thesis that he advances? Has anyone heard about this? Anyone know that the, the main upshot of the Sachs thesis? He's a big guy. He's someone we have to pay attention to. Yeah? So like access to ports and like living in Africa wasn't really good for transporting things down. So That's right. Right. So navigable waterways. Okay, you have to have navigable waterways. Now, if any of you remember your history uh, classes, like basically just a, a Western Civ class, what do you remember about the Cape of Africa? Pretty rough place to get boats around, right? It took people a long time to go around the Cape, and it's really rough water there. So you don't get a lot of coastal development along the Cape, uh, and the waterways inland are all really rough 
They're loaded with uh, bugs and reptiles and other scary things that you don't want to deal with. But it's also an issue of rapids. You can't get up the waterways very much, like you can uh, in, say, the west, in the Mississippi. Okay? Uh, so the navigable waterway part is one part of the story. The other part is that if you're close to the equator, you're done for. Okay? Why are you done for if you're a country that's close to the equator? What's going on when you're close to the equator? Yeah. Why is that? Right, okay, so winter's something that other parts of the world have to worry about. Here in Denver, you all kind of have to worry about it. I'm from, I'm from the upper peninsula of Michigan. We used to get 200 inches of snow per winter. And, you know, we walked to school barefoot and uphill both ways and all of that stuff, too. Uh, but it, it's cold, and you have to save and plan ahead for it. And what saving and planning ahead does is it actually creates, you know, like this future orientation. And you have to stock up. And then in the winter months, you just experiment and you innovate and you play around with things because you're sitting inside and you're trying to stay warm. You read books. And over time, what happens is areas of the world that are in the northern, northern hemisphere, but in the, in the very northern part of the northern hemisphere, flourish. And those around the tropics, basically self, they're basically subsistent. Okay? Uh, added to that, when you're close to the tropics, you have a malaria problem that's much bigger. Okay? So uh, in that band between the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn, you don't have a lot of prosperity. And he calls it the, the uh, a geographic curse. Okay? If you're in that, that band of countries, you're going to have a much more difficult time developing. Okay? Uh, and he, he also says that if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, you're going to struggle uh, tremendously as well. So you all can see where, this, where I'm going with this. Okay? Botswana is a landlocked country. All right? No water to speak of around it. Okay? Uh, it's a country that's in sub-Saharan Africa. It's mostly desert land. And somehow they're just sitting out there like an outlier, a pesky outlier for Jeffrey Sachs. Okay? Uh, we'd, I'd like to see him uh, uh, kind of address that. Now, he does a little bit. What he says is it's a small country. Okay? So he just says, ah, it's small. It's not important. Uh, well, I'm not so sure. Okay? Uh, one other thing, why am I uh, uh, talking about Botswana so much? When you look uh, closely at the... Uh, uh, at the story behind Botswana's success, it's a story of markets uh, working pretty well, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to only spend a second on this. Those of you who um, have had an econometrics class, okay, or you're statistically inclined, uh, there's a whole literature uh, about why Africa is messed up. Okay, why isn't Africa growing? And here are some of the reasons. Okay, over here on the on the right-hand side, maybe it's corruption or a lack of openness. Maybe it's ethnic diversity. So if your people are the same, you can grow. If your people are different in your country, then they're going to always be fighting, and your country won't grow. Uh, maybe, it's a lack, uh, maybe it's too much aid. Okay? If we give too much aid to an African country, they become dependent, and they don't grow on their own. So there's a whole literature here. And this literature can be summarized as the quest for the African dummy. What's behind uh, Africa's struggles? Okay? And uh, a lot of people have tried to get at this uh, with mixed success. No one, none of these stories are satisfactory on their own. And the big problem with them is they're just throwing so much into 
a growth regression and then asking it to do too much work, okay? Uh, uh, it, it can only do so much, all right? And uh, what you need is you need history to augment what you're doing in, uh, in regression analysis. So uh, my methodology is a little bit different here. I told you I, uh, uh, I spent time uh, in the field. I'd like to get back there. It's a tough place to get to and spend uh, time, uh, but, uh, but it'd be great uh, if I could get back there in the next couple of years. Uh, Alex, I think, if you've had classes with him, uh, has probably talked to you about a slightly different uh, method that some people in economics rely on. It's called the analytic narrative. And what you do is you don't just do history, okay? You don't just you know, go out and have no theory. What you do is you take your theory, all right? Uh, a theory that says demand curve slope downward, okay? A theory that says markets, when left to their own devices, work pretty well. A theory that says I know no country, okay? This is just from Milton Friedman. I know of no country that's economically free and dirt poor. Or you can think of it in the other extreme. I know of no country that's economically unfree and flourishing. Okay, so you take basic, basic ideas from theory and you go out and you look at the real world and get your hands dirty and interact with the world. Okay, it's, uh, it's been described as a thick historical account. Uh, you do field work, you look at the historical record, and then you rely on conventional data, like I showed you uh, in the previous couple of slides. Okay? You take all of these things together, and then you tell a rich story about what's going on. Uh, now, this particular uh, analysis that I'm presenting to you is comparative. It, we're comparing Botswana, which is one extreme, to Zimbabwe, which is another sad extreme. We're going to get to that uh, in just a couple of minutes. So you're not going to see a bunch of summary statistics or uh, uh, t-stats uh, in this presentation. It's a different approach to, uh, to economics altogether. Uh, here's uh, the case of Botswana. Uh, it was the poorest nation in 1965. Today it's a middle-income nation. I usually talk about it being comparable to Greece. Okay, that's about where it is. But I'm hesitant to use Greece uh, in, in any discussion right now because Greece is <laughs> uh, not like some country that you want to just emulate at the moment. Okay, you, it's, it's got problems. Uh, but it's it's got an income level similar to Greece right at this moment in time. Greece's income level tomorrow could be a lot lower, or in a couple of years it could be a lot lower. Uh, so that's a big improvement, to go from one of the poorest countries to a middle-income country. We don't have a lot of examples of this happening. There are some in East Asia. Uh, there are a few that, after the collapse of communism, really took off. But uh, we have a lot of examples of countries that were middle-income, that went backwards and became a lot poorer. Okay, so I'm, I'm interested in it because it's in part a really nice development story. Uh, and it's a story based on economic freedom. I think if you all have been around here a couple of years, Bob Lawson was here last year. Uh, he's like the economic freedom guru. He, uh, he probably put up a bunch of slides on how he measures economic freedom. And if you remember, economic freedom is just government tying its own hands, essentially. Government not taxing you too much government not printing too much money, a government based on the rule of law instead of just arbitrary rules, a government open to trade, okay? If your government does these things and commits to them, uh, your country generally prospers. That was, that's probably a message that you took away from Lawson's uh, presentation. That's true in Botswana. It was the freest African country uh, until this last economic freedom report. In the last freedom report, um, Mauritius, 
has, uh, has passed it up, okay? And I believe South Africa jumped by it. They're real close. Uh, uh, so a couple of countries have moved by it. It's not that Botswana has just become unfree recently. It's that these other countries are becoming freer, okay? So Botswana's holding up fine. It's just that uh, uh, other countries are, are chasing after it in terms of being free. It's a very transparent government, uh, and it has a pretty strong record uh, of human rights. Uh, one thing that uh, you'll find in the early historical accounts of what uh, Botswana did that was a little bit different is it actually um, it embraced uh, what, what its leadership called liberal cosmopolitanism. Okay? Now, uh, we kind of have a sense of what liberal cosmopolitanism is in America. Okay? It's like uh, peace, love, and dope. Okay? Um, and I was just in San Francisco. It's a really neat place. I like peace, love, and dope. Okay? Um, Especially peace and love, um, uh, not so much dope. I'm old and not interested in dope. Uh, but we kind of know what liberal cosmopolitanism is here. There it was something much different. It was embracing foreigners and letting them come to your country and allowing them to get a start in your country. Okay? Uh, in the 1960s, in Botswana, there was apartheid. Okay, there was Rhodesia, which was just a straight up racist empire, okay? And there weren't a lot of places for people who uh, were being persecuted to run to. But there was one, and it was Botswana. They opened up their borders and allowed refugees to come. All that they asked of refugees was that they not commit violence against other people. So they brought in all of these refugees. And the refugees are kind of interesting because um, to be a refugee, you have to kind of mix it up with the politicians in your own country. Okay, you have to say things that maybe aren't, you know, um, uh, well received, that maybe you're the dissenting voice in your own country. You come to Botswana, and now you have a chance to just be your own person. And it led to a lot of innovation, a lot of entrepreneurship, and just this feisty culture uh, that's very tolerant of others and tolerant of foreigners. I'll get back to this uh, a little bit later, but this has changed. Uh, uh, when I was uh, in, uh, in Botswana in, uh, uh, in 2004, uh, it's, it's very different now. It's more of a police state. They are very concerned about the Zimbabweans coming in. And they have checkpoints all over the country making sure that the Zimbabweans aren't crossing into Botswana. That's not how things were back when they first became independent. And it's a difference worth paying attention to and keeping our eyes on. Uh, so what's, what can we attribute Botswana's success to? Uh, again, I have a whole bunch of papers on this, but uh, uh, good leadership is part of the story. Uh, they had, a, they're, on their not, they're on their 10th uh, national development plan now. Uh, they're working on the 10th, and national development plans are five-year plans that um, basically make it very difficult for leaders to amend their spending after the plan has been sent, set. Okay, so how does Congress in the United States handle spending, basically they determine it in each congressional period, right? You, 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 you meet with the House, you meet with the Senate. If you want to gin up a stimulus bill, you gin it up in that session, and then it gets pushed through, okay? Or it gets talked down. We, we lower the number a little bit. Uh, in Botswana, they set spending priorities for five-year periods. And in order to amend the spending plan, you have to have unanimity, 
Okay? So you have to have all of the congressional leaders wanting to do the same thing, to amend it. So this constrains them. It ties their hands. Can you imagine if Nancy Pelosi had her hands tied for five years? She'd have to really focus up front on what she wanted the next five years and then get Congress on board with all of that spending. That's a much more difficult issue to, do, to, to pull off. Uh, it's, a, it's a much more po difficult political problem to pull off than to just do it piecemeal, one thing at a time. Okay? So they've, they, have, they, have a, they have an approach to expenditures that's very different, and it's based also on a lot of cost-benefit analysis. Um, uh, the leadership there uh, takes cost-benefit seriously. So if something doesn't pass the cost-benefit test, they don't spend money on it. And here's just one uh, anecdote. Uh, uh, the, the second president in Botswana, Quentin Masiri, he had a very long tenure as president, uh, lived outside of the city. He lived on this dirt road, okay? I, I don't know if, like, if you got far enough outside of Denver, you'd probably have a dirt road with just a couple of houses on it, okay? And he farmed ostriches, all right? He, he, uh, 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 he was a farmer, a, a cattleman as well, and he just liked to live a private life outside of the capital. After he became president, right away, uh, officials wanted to pave his road, saying, you have to have your road paved, Mr. President, okay? It'll cut down on the bumps for you, okay? And he said, well, how does it do on the cost-benefit test? And they said, well, you're the only person who drives up and down the road, but you're the president. And he said, look, it doesn't make any sense to pave this really long road if I'm the only person driving on it. I'll take my chances on the bumpy dirt road and we'll save money. Uh, in the early days, they also uh, uh, flew coach on a lot of their flights. So diplomats from Botswana going to other countries would fly coach. Can you imagine our president doing that? I haven't seen him on a plane next to me on Frontier Airlines lately, okay? We just, uh, of course, we can afford to have our president on Air Force One now. Botswana couldn't in the early days, but there was this stingy frugality there uh, that helped fuel uh, their economic growth boom. Uh, a couple of other things, I won't spend too much time on this, but uh, uh, there was a respect for indigenous institutions and a focus on getting unanimity in decision making. What's an indigenous institution? It's something that's a norm, okay? And maybe it goes way back, all right? Uh, when you all go to the bathroom, you often wash your hands when you're done. Okay, and this is a norm that you can't really articulate why you do it. Maybe you say, "Well, it's for germ reasons." Okay, or maybe my mother taught me to do that. Okay, uh, or oh, there's someone else in the bathroom. I want to make sure that I'm washing my hands to signal to them that I'm a hand washer. Okay, uh, it's an indigenous institution that's hard to explain, but it's there, and we respect it. Okay, and Botswana had a lot of indigenous institutions like this, not necessarily hand washing, okay, but tribal norms that go way, way back in time. And their leadership, rather than trying to stomp them out, embraced them and said, this is always how we've done things. Now, when you look around the history of Sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of other countries went the route of trying to destroy these things. What they said was, we're modernizing. So we're going to get rid of old tribal ways of doing things and we're going to introduce you to the Western way. Okay, I, I kid you not. Uh, in many cases, there were these local markets uh, that were that were face-to-face um, -face interactions. They were all based on little kiosks. So you rolled your fruit stand out into the street and you tried to sell goods. Corrupt leaders, not in Botswana, but in other African countries, Ghana, for example, actually went about dynamiting these markets, killing people in the process. Why would you dynamite the markets? 
It's not modern. We want buildings that are permanent instead. How do we get permanent buildings? By destroying what's there. It's crazy, okay? That's another model to, uh, to development. Uh, and this is continuing. Uh, they view slums not as a place where people live, but as backwards housing. So what they're gonna do in many cases is just bulldoze the slums without any place to put the people after the slums have been bulldozed. That's modernization, African style, okay? Uh, and Botswana was different. They said, let's do no harm. Let's try to just work with what we have here and, uh, and see how that goes. One other thing, they didn't have a national defense until 1975. 10 years without any defense, okay? Their defense, if anyone wanted to take them over, was to basically just call on other countries for humanitarian aid. And they gambled. They said, let's hope that someone comes to our aid. And they were lucky enough not to get invaded by another country, okay? They had a small little police force, okay? Uh, a few guys packing heat, okay? But they had no military spending to speak of. Now, why is that important? Well, if you have a big military budget, it's a drain on your economy. You need taxes to pay for that. These are people who are the third poorest people in the world. Funding a military is very expensive, so they went without, okay? Uh, and this helped fuel their early growth miracle. Let's shift gears uh, and uh, uh, just shift to Bots uh, Zimbabwe here for a few minutes. Any questions at all so far? Here's a very different story. Um, Botswana, I, I, the one thing I, I often worry about with Botswana is that I'm praising it too much, but it really is praiseworthy, okay? It's amazing, if you look at some of those early charts, how well the country's doing, okay? And how well people there are doing. Uh, poor people in Botswana have it so much better than poor people just about anywhere else in Africa, if not anywhere else in the underdeveloped world, okay? Uh, here's a very different story. Um, Zimbabwe is a country not doing so well. You all know this, uh, but let's kind of try to put the Zimbabwe experience in perspective here. Uh, since 1980 through 2005, okay, uh, they have averaged minus 1.3% growth per year, okay? Uh, that's impressive in a bad way. Okay, to just grow negatively year after year after year for a 25-year period. And again, we stopped at 2005. Things have gotten much worse since then. In 2006 and 2007, there were big land grabs by, the, uh, by, by Robert Mugabe, uh, and things haven't changed much since. They have massive hyperinflation uh, that we'll get to, and it's, it's a country going nowhere fast. So this number, negative 1.3%, would probably be a lot more negative if we had, uh, had more reliable data. Uh, we all just endured a, a little recession, maybe, maybe, maybe more than a little, okay? We just endured the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Uh, that was a one-year period of negative growth. And how negative was it for that one year? Anyone remember or have some sense? A little more than that, I think maybe three or four, if you, uh, uh, overall, maybe three or 4% taken off of GDP uh, in one year. And look how upset we all got in America. One year of negative growth, 
in the 3 or 4% range. And we have a massive stimulus bill, okay, a couple of them, all right. We have a serious concentration of power in the Federal Reserve. We've got uh, people who are unemployed and unemployment rates up to 10%. Uh, a lot of anxiety. It's just a one-year blip on a long growth trend in America. It's like they're experiencing a 25-year series of blips, one after another, and they're having to live through it. Okay, and it's not uh, going well. It's, they're the least economically free nation in the world. If you look at Bob Lawson's uh, index, uh, the Economic Freedom Index, uh, they have an oppressive political regime, major human rights violations. The, the record on Zimbabwe uh, has yet to be fully written, um, but uh, uh, there have been crimes against humanity and a lot of other just uh, uh, atrocious acts committed against the people there. It's probably, you know, and, uh, sadly we have a few contenders here. It's probably the poorest country on the planet. Um, North Korea is right up there. Okay, so they're running neck and neck in a race of like dumb and dumbest. Okay, uh, they're, they're, they're both uh, uh, going nowhere. And uh, we have major epidemics and sanitation problems. The, the water in most places in Zimbabwe isn't drinkable. And uh, people are still trying to drink it. Okay, uh, uh, there was a cholera outbreak in uh, uh, 2008 that uh, left tens of thousands of people um, sick or dead, uh, and uh, not much uh, is going right for it. Uh, here's, uh, uh, someone asked me if I was going to show this chart, and here's one chart, uh, or one picture, um, that gives you a sense of how quickly things are changing, but not in a good way in, uh, in Zimbabwe. If you all look at the left, uh, this is, this is uh, uh, from, I, I think it's just from an airplane, but it's, uh, it's from pretty high up. If you look at the left, though, uh, what you see there, if you look closely, are a whole bunch of houses and shacks and shanties. It's slums, okay, but it's something. Remember me talking a minute ago about indigenous institutions. There are a bunch of people hoping for better things in those houses. There are a bunch of people with a roof over their head in the evening, okay. Uh, there are families trying to educate their children. And there's a lot of stuff, maybe even markets in this area. And that's April 18th, 2005. Between April 18th and June 4th, 2005, there was a property reform movement uh, that Robert Mugabe put in place. Now, when I think of property reform, I think of like, hmm, maybe we're privatizing, okay? Uh, maybe we're selling off uh, things that, that, that are currently in the commons. Maybe we're just auctioning off uh, a business. What Robert Mugabe meant by it was bulldozing, okay? And if you look closely, there's almost nothing left in uh, uh, just a couple of months, okay? Everything was, uh, uh, was basically bulldozed over, and people in these areas were just sent off into uh, uh, commons areas to try to survive, okay? And it's, uh, now they're, they're living with uh, almost no shelter over their heads, uh, and they've been moved into basically like cattle into an area where they're told this is where you're going to this is where you've been relocated to, and you must stay there uh, until who knows? Okay, it's very unpredictable how long uh, you'll be there. So this is this is reform Zimbabwe style. Talked about reform Botswana style a little bit. This is an opposite experience. This is probably something you all are aware of. Uh, uh, one thing that happens when uh, government spends like crazy, and when government doesn't uh, commit to economic freedom, is that quickly they run out of money, okay? 
if you starve your people and if you grow your economy at minus 1.3% per year for 25 years, quickly you have a problem, okay? You run out of revenue for the government to live off of. Now, if you run out of revenue, the ideal thing to do would be to cut expenditures, right? I mean, this is what states around the U.S. are having to do right now. Our revenue in the United States has gone down a little bit because of the recession. And states ha are having to tighten their belts and cut expenditures, maybe on education, okay? In Georgia, where I live, uh, they're having to uh, cut revenue by, uh, cut expenditures by about $1.4 billion, okay? Uh, this is going to mean cuts to higher education, cuts to health care, cuts to a lot of parks that we like to hike at in the state of Georgia, okay? So you have to cut expenditures. That's the normal approach uh, when your government is starving. What Zimbabwe did instead, okay, uh, is print a lot of money. That's another way to deal with starving government revenue, is to just make money, okay? When I come up short on my bills at the end of the month, I have to start paying interest. Or I have to figure out a way to make more money, like come visit folks at Metro, okay, and like make some money. It's the end of the month, by the way, okay? There's a reason I'm here. I need to pay the bills, okay? Uh, so you, you have to get income up or cut expenditures, or you're going to pay interest, okay? Governments have this one nice little device that they can rely on that's different than what I have available. They have a printing press, but they're not printing exams, okay? They're not photocopying government documents. They're printing money, and they use it to pay their bills, okay? The U.S. does this, all right? Western Europe is going to do this. Greece will probably do this. Okay, this is why I don't like saying Greece. Even that word bothers me right now. Uh, and Zimbabwe is just a little ahead of us in printing money to deal with their sins, okay? And what they've done, and I'll show you this in a chart in a second, is they've inflated their economy to try to keep the high levels of government expenditures do going. But if you print a lot of money, what is always going to be the result? This is just Milton Friedman. Inflation is always and everywhere the result of printing money. It's a monetary phenomena. And what we have here is a picture of a guy just trying to go buy a loaf of bread, okay? Uh, that's how much money he's having to take to market. Now, you all may say, well, he looks like a strong, sturdy man. That doesn't seem so bad, okay? He can take a little money. It's good for him. It's exercise, okay? Uh, but the problem is, is that as he's carrying it to market, it's losing a lot of its value on its way, okay? Money is so worthless in Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean dollar is so worthless that people are instead putting it up on their walls as wallpaper. Robert Mugabe, I, I kid you not, had to pass legislation, okay, that banned people from using it for fire and for toilet paper. It's that bad. That's how worthless Zimbabwean dollars are, okay? Uh, you don't even use it for those things. It's a life or death situation as well, okay? Uh, there are accounts of children taking money to uh, markets, and by the time that they get there, the money uh, has lost a lot of its value, and they can't afford to buy the goods that their parents sent them to purchase, okay? That's how fast money is depreciating there, all right? Uh, here's a couple of charts explaining why this has happened. If you look at these, um, for a long period of time, government spending growth was under control. It was, it was growing fast, but it, uh, uh, it wasn't runaway spending growth. And then something happened around 2000, okay? Uh, I guess you could actually say 1999 wasn't a very good year. Anytime you grow 
your government expenditures by like 60% in a year, you say, damn, that's a lot of growth in expenditures, okay? But then we have 2000, and this thing went up like crazy. Now, a lot of people will focus on these last couple of points, and they say, oh, well, he's, he's cutting expenditures at least between 2004 and 2005. Well, look at the scale on the y-axis, okay? These are percentage changes. So between 2004 and 2005, he only, only grew his expenditures at about 240%. <laughs> that's not cutting expenditures. That's just growing them a little bit less rapidly than 370%. Can you all imagine this? I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about how, how much uh, uh, expenditures have gone up there. And as you increase expenditures, you get average annual inflation that uh, is, is just hard to imagine. You get hyperinflation. What's gone on with, uh, with annual inflation is that we're in the hundreds of thousands of percentages. 2% okay. inflation here bothers us. Okay? We have 2% inflation right now, or somewhere around that, and we don't, when we don't get a pay raise, we say, oh, I'm falling behind. These folks are falling behind every second. There's that much inflation in the country. So it's a very sad story, uh, and a story that's not real hopeful uh, at the moment. What's gone on there uh, is that Zimbabwe's gone the complete opposite direction of, uh, of Botswana. Uh, and if, I'm, I'm going to try to sum this up re relatively quickly here, but uh, they could learn a lot if they would just look to the country to their west. Robert Mugabe doesn't want to look to anyone, though, and this is the problem. He certainly doesn't want to hear from the west what he should do. All have any, do you all have any idea what he does or what he says if a western expert comes into his country and says, here's what you need to do? What does he say to them? Anyone want to just take a stab at it? If, if, if Scott Bollier from uh, Georgia came and tried to give Robert Mugabe advice, besides probably, you know, being beaten up, what would he say to me? I'm an imperialist. That's it, okay? You're an imperialist. You all from the West have got me into this situation. It's your bad policies. It's capitalism that's to blame for this, okay? I don't need to hear it from you. I'm going to go with my own model for Zimbabwe, and I'm going to figure it out the Zimbabwe way, okay, which is free from all of these imperialistic influences. So you can't get him to listen to Western advice. But one thing maybe he will listen to is what's going on around him. And if he were to listen to Botswana and take a look in at what their economy has done, he'll see that economic freedom actually works in Africa. One thing that people consistently say about Africa is it doesn't work, okay? Things are different here. A commitment to the rule of law is going to break down. We have to spend more because we've been poor for so long. But Botswana demonstrates something very different. Uh, uh, he also needs to commit to his indigenous institutions again. Let me talk about those just for a second. Uh, Zimbabwe has a really neat history. Back in the 1980s, it was an exporter of food. It actually was described uh, by many as the breadbasket of, uh, of Africa. Now everyone calls it the basket case of Africa. So from breadbasket to basket case, in 30 years, okay? It's very sad. But if you look back at their history, they actually had an experiment with free banking. Uh, I don't know if uh, Professor Padilla ever talks about free banking, but basically they had competing currencies. And what do competing currencies do? 
they constrain your central bank, okay? It prevents your central bank from inflating too much. What do you do if one currency is inflated too much? You go and you rely on another, okay? So they had a history of free banking. Uh, they had a strong history of the rule of law. The judges in Zimbabwe were some of the last people to leave. They said, we simply cannot govern, okay? We can not uphold the laws here because every time we do, we're putting our lives at risk. Uh, the rule of law has been corrupted. So they uh, uh, have basically either fled the country or have uh, uh, resigned from their positions. So there is no strong rule of law there. Uh, and another indigenous institution that's very important, that's being just completely corrupted right now, uh, is uh, just the student activist movement and dissident efforts. Okay? One thing that was very important in the um, uh, collapse of communism was people protesting and just saying, this is ridiculous, we're not going to take it. In Zimbabwe, if you do that, there's a very good chance you're gonna end up in jail and maybe beaten severely, okay? So uh, if, we're, if we're going to see the Zimbabwean reform, they need to embrace some of the ideas in, uh, in Botswana and also come back and rediscover some of their own local uh, indigenous institutions. Uh, here's one thing that's encouraging uh, in Zimbabwe. Africans themselves, they're, Mugabe is not going to listen to me, okay? I am an imperialist, okay? Uh, but he may listen to other Africans, and other African groups and think tanks are now pushing for him to actually promote free market reforms. Uh, AfricanLiberty.org is a consortium of um, uh, African bloggers who are blogging, blogging on the importance of liberty, not only in Zimbabwe, but in other uh, African countries. Uh, and a report put together by nine different think tanks titled the Zimbabwe Papers uh, tries to give Robert Mugabe a blueprint for how to reform. It's not Mugabe who's ever going to do it though, so it tries to give Zimbabwe's next generation of leaders an idea of how you do this. And the report is filled with uh, uh, explanations of how they need to lower their taxes, lower expenditures, tie their currency to a dollar maybe, dollarize their currency, and do other things that are more market oriented. This is all gonna take a really long time, okay? Uh, at minimum, you need uh, Mugabe to either be thrown out of power or to die, okay? Many people just are waiting for him to die. But when we have that critical moment, you want the right ideas to be in place. And groups like this are pushing for these ideas, and they're ending up in the hands of the right people. Okay, uh, this is Morgan Shangarai. Uh, he's he's someone who should have been sharing power with Mugabe, uh, but that power-sharing relationship has broken down. Uh, he uh, uh, was legitimately uh, elected, and all indications are he could be uh, the future leader of Zimbabwe. And if you look closely at what he's reading in his hands is it's this report, uh, this free market oriented reform report. So maybe these ideas are going to end up in the hands of people that matter, okay? And I'll just end uh, real quickly here. So what I'm trying to do again is it's an academic exercise. I'm trying to get people to stop talking about Africa as just this big mass. Okay? It'd be like talking about the United States and saying, ah, it's just one big area. All right? I tell you, Colorado's a lot different than Georgia. Okay? You all probably can drink on Sundays, right? Can you buy alcohol on Sundays? Yeah? I can't. All right? I have to stock up on Saturday night, okay? because Sunday the whole state is dry. Uh, that's a difference. But what if someone from outside of the United States just said, oh, well, the United States, um, 
they drink on Sundays. That wouldn't be right. Okay? Or what if they said, well, people in the United States don't drink on Sundays. That wouldn't be quite right either. Okay? There's actually a thing called disaggregation that you need. And when you disaggregate, you see a lot of rich stories, a couple of them that I've told you about here today. Uh, so when we disaggregate, we see a lot of insights about African underdevelopment, and we can glean some things from these. Uh, and I hope that by studying the successes, uh, countries like uh, Zimbabwe can learn a thing or two about how other countries are doing it. Uh, of course, this whole project requires a lot of humility, um, baby steps. Uh, is, uh, is kind of the, the only show in town. You're not going to suddenly just make Zimbabwe, Botswana tomorrow. But we can hope that, uh, that over time the right message gets into that country. Uh, thank you all. I have some time for questions, so uh, I need a drink of water. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that the, the project of modeling Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa with a dummy variable, is a flawed approach. Um, I think that it's flawed because there's so much variation getting picked up in that one variable. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm also trying to get him to understand that there are outliers that just don't fit with the story he's telling. What yes? What was the question? What was, oh, uh, so, so uh, the question was, uh, do I think that the, the, the SACs and the development approach that I, I talked about on the one side, do I think that's flawed, um, or do I think that it's just uh, an, exception. A, an exception? And a, a little bit of both, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like uh, one of the uh, central pieces to your, uh, I guess, your presentation is that uh, Botswana and maybe other countries really could Oh. All right. Um, so it sounds like that uh, Botswana has really uh, benefited from some underlying institutions, rule of law, markets, uh, and other countries could benefit from that. Um, so I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how they might do that. What's the role of aid? Uh, is there a role for aid? Uh, what's the role of uh, other countries kind of helping them. I know that structural adjustment is a much uh, uh, debated and contentious idea, uh, flaws and failures and some success maybe, but if you could yep. talk about some of that. Sure, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think aid as we know it uh, is not going to really do much. Uh, I think that if you look at like William Easterly's work, um, the record of, the aid record uh, is pretty clear that all of the approaches that we've tried to develop through the aid uh, uh, approach, and the aid approach is, you know, give countries money to, you know, maybe invest in physical capital or human capital or uh, in, uh, in controlling pregnancy and controlling reproduction, all of these different models. Now, uh, the, you know, what's in vogue now is conditionality. So we're going to give you money if you improve and reform your institutions. Okay, well, the problem there is that institutional reform is something that has to come from the bottom up. So how do you get that bottom up uh, um, entrepreneurship in institutions? Uh, that comes from the people. And uh, it really needs to be something that, if we're in that business at all, needs to be very local uh, and needs to be 
um, kind of micro uh, in focus. Now, can aid organizations um, augment or encourage that? I'm not sure. I, I, I can't think of a lot that they can do to, to help that process out. They may be able to help it, though, if they just get out of the way. Because what you do when you're in that business is you're distorting all kinds of signals. And you're preventing, uh, sometimes you're doing things that are completely counterproductive. Um, and we have a lot of examples of this. You know, like staffing, building a hospital and telling people that there will be um, great jobs in the hospital, okay, but then not st staffing it with any equipment. That gets people out of jobs that were helping them get ahead, uh, and uh, they leave those behind, and end up um, and end up you know working in a hospital that really doesn't have work for them. So they pick up their lives, and then it it doesn't pan out. Other questions? You mentioned that um, the border more open yeah. than it is now. Do you see that as a result of the visa deteriorations in Zimbabwe? Yeah. Or, and then do you think it's necessary that they do that because there would be such so many refugees from Zimbabwe? Yeah, you know, so uh, they've become pretty xenophobic and uh, concerned about uh, Zimbabweans coming in. And there's a lot of discussion about can we absorb a labor force from Zimbabwe into our population. Zimbabwe is much more populated uh, than, than Botswana. Botswana has about 2 million people. Uh, Zimbabwe has about 20 million, so it's a much bigger uh, country. And the concern is that, hey, we have high unemployment in Botswana already. Where are these people going to come and work? They're just going to be a drain on the system. Uh, my, my problem with that uh, is uh, uh, there are, I have multiple problems with that. If, if it's a drain on the system issue, okay, well then just change some of the things that the system is doing. You know, we hear this uh, about people coming from Latin America as well. They're going to come and they're going to take jobs and they're also going to depend on the United States for welfare and education and whatnot. You can avoid giving people as much in the way of education and uh, you know, uh, uh, welfare, and that problem is solved. Uh, as far as jobs go, they may actually be willing to do things that uh, ordinary um, citizens aren't uh, interested in doing. The, the real hang-up, though, is that it's, it's inconsistent with uh, Botswana's good uh, cosmopolitan roots. Uh, it, it emerged, and its success is due to being a tolerant, open country. Some people describe it as the Switzerland of sub-Saharan Africa. What's neat about Switzerland? Well, they're always neutral in war, okay? But you go there and nobody asks you any questions. You can come and freely move and go as you please. Uh, and what's happened to Switzerland by being that kind of country? They're very wealthy and very prosperous. Botswana could exploit the opportunity that it's in by trying to, be a, uh, trying to uh, pursue the Switzerland model. Being protectionist and just cutting yourselves off to other countries and to other people um, is always a failed strategy in the long run. In uh, 2007, Ghana discovered a lot of oil, mm -hmm. and they're kind of trying to figure out what to do with that. Yeah. When uh, Botswana gained their independence, they kind of took over the diamond mine and That's stuff right. like that, and they sold 50% uh, of the stake to foreign companies, mm -hmm. I believe two of them. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend to Ghana that they do the same thing with their oil? Yeah, gosh, uh, it's a good question. Now, before uh, figuring out what to do about Ghana, um, 
the really special thing about Botswana's experience is they got their institutions in place first, and then they had a lot of the diamond discoveries come on to uh, come into the economy. So if you have the institutions right, it's very easy then to not let them get corrupted. If you have the resources there at the same time that you're trying to reform, then things get really messed up. Because what does government think about? They think about money, money, money. And when they're thinking about money, 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 they don't worry as much about private property rights and the rule of law. They just try to figure out how can we soak the oil company. Uh, Botswana, they didn't do um, things in like any kind of ideal laissez-faire way when it comes to their diamonds. As you point out, it's a 50-50 arrangement between De Beers and uh, Botswana. They call it Debswana. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's run and operated by De Beers, but the Botswana people, uh, namely government appointees, uh, are on the board as well and have controlling stakes uh, in the company. So it's, it's a 50-50 arrangement. Uh, that gets you around some of the issues of legitimacy and, you know, we need to get something back for all of these diamonds. The revenue needs to stay here uh, to some extent. The worst approach for Ghana, I'm not going to answer your question satisfactorily, but the worst approach would be to say, we're going to let the state run this. And that's what some countries do. Let's nationalize our oil and, um, you know, then, then we'll handle production. Or we will let you... We will let you produce here. We'll let Shell into the country to produce, but we're going to dictate how many people you must hire and what you pay them. Let Shell determine all of the wage structures. Let Shell determine what the labor force needs to be. Let them keep some stake of the profits. And if you're worried about you know, legitimacy, give some ownership to the state, but make sure the state isn't involved in day-to-day -day affairs. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a strange country because it's very free market in some ways, but it's not, it's not like, our, it's not Hong Kong. <laughs> oh. It's really neat for Africa, though, uh, as far as African cases go. When you were doing your research on the differences between both countries and you're looking at the relationship of Botswana and Zimbabwe in South Africa, what did you see as the role of South Africa? Do you think that South Africa has enabled the crisis in Zimbabwe? Uh, um, South Africa is important. They're kind of the behemoth of the region. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Botswana worries uh, about South Africa. One thing that it does in Botswana's case uh, for leadership is they've been very careful to try to have reserve funds because they're worried that at some point that border may close. It, they're on good terms right now, but you never know when things will go crazy uh, to your south. And if, if they got cut off from trade with South Africa, they'd have big problems in a hurry, being landlocked and uh, counting on South Africa for so much trade. Uh, this concern has lessened uh, in, in recent years. It was something that was much more of a concern in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, but it led to a culture where you run um, uh, reserves. So they had a huge rainy day fund uh, in the country. A rainy day fund is there uh, in the event that they close the border or in the event that you have a huge drought. Okay, you can still get food for your people. You can get water and whatnot. So uh, South Africa... Um, they get along all right with Botswana. There are some huge cultural differences. Um, they're, they're very, 
I, I, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but there's, there's a little bit more of an elitism uh, in South Africa uh, relative to Botswana. Botswana's uh, uh, culture is just much more laid back and, uh, and tolerant. But one thing that uh, South Africa's experiment with apartheid did was make them very concerned and watchful, but in a good way. It led to fiscal responsibility. Zimbabwe um, has been enabled a little bit by a lack of sanctions of Mugabe. Um, you know, not, not sanctions formally, but just saying what you've done is atrocious. Uh, and more leaders need to come down on him, but they're, they're hesitant to do so because of the colonial legacy and the fact that this is one of the charismatic leaders to emerge um, after Rhodesia. Remember that prior to Mugabe, okay, uh, you have Ian Smith, who's just a, a white racist, um, doing really bad things in, in, in what's modern day Zimbabwe. So it's a reaction to um, racism in the other extreme. Yeah. Questions? Seems like uh, um, resource-rich countries have a hard time maintaining a stable growth rate, and uh, Botswana seems to be different. Is it uh, simply that they have uh, stronger market um, institutions, or is it that they deploy those resources differently? Great question. Yeah. Uh, so, a couple of things that happen. I think that your your comment about market institutions, their institutions um, encourage stability, I believe. Uh, but also getting back to this fiscal frugality or fiscal conservatism again, um, they could have extracted a lot more diamond revenue real quickly. De Beers wanted them to move faster in terms of extraction rates. They said, we got all of these diamonds, demand is high, let's get more diamonds onto the market. And it was uh, the, the leadership that slowed them down. And why did the leadership slow them down? They said, we're going to have white elephants all over the place. If we get this much revenue coming into the government, you'll get the big blip in expenditures. You'll have overbuilding of mansions and palaces uh, and you know dams and all kinds of other things. And then, of course, the revenue will slow down and we'll have big problems. So it was, it, it's, it's hard to understand where that foresight came from, the ability to look out and say, if we take a lot of revenue now, it's only going to bite us in the long run. Because politicians have incentives to just smoke it if you got it. Okay, If you get money, spend it. And if there's someone trying to give you more money, take it. Okay, like That's the general incentive for a politician. They did things a little differently there, and it was just an attitude of conservatism. Um, real hard to explain. Uh, they, they, they sometimes say it goes back to just being uh, dirt poor and always having to worry about money, but a lot of countries are like that, and they didn't they didn't go the same direction as Botswana in terms of responsible management. So.